Happy holidays, subtextual listeners. This week's episode is a special re-release of one of our favorite holiday films, Carol, directed by Todd Haynes. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of a true Christmas classic, but for now, enjoy this sapphic slow burn that we like to rewatch every year. Enjoy! Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Merry Christmas, Sam! Oh, Merry Christmas, Lizzie! Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to talk to you about one of my favorite Christmas movies. It too is one of my favorite Christmas movies. I love this movie very much. And I consider it a Christmas movie in the way that people consider that one Bruce Willis movie to be a Christmas movie. <laughs> I consider this a Christmas movie in the way that I consider Harry Potter a Christmas movie, which means I just watch it all year long <laughs> with no breaks. All right. So A Christmas Carol is the story of Scrooge McDuck who meets the three ghosts of Christmas <laughs> and reckons with capitalism. I've often said that Scrooge McDuck is a gay icon. (laughs) All right, before y'all all all start deleting us. Clicking away from from this. Clicking away. (laughs) We're going to be discussing the film Carol um, from 2015. Honestly, a movie that I cannot find a single fault with. But maybe we can find one today together. Yeah, maybe together with our joined power of criticism. Yeah, and our two bachelor degrees. Absolutely. Can find it. I think we can. Um, So, Sam, have you seen this movie? Yes, many times. So you're very familiar with it. I'm very familiar with this movie. Um, Do you remember seeing it for the first time? Was I with you? I feel like we were together. Did we see this at a film festival? It was in 2015, so we were definitely already friends. I feel like we did go into a theater and see. I do remember seeing it with you because was it a film? Because fucking um, Carrie Brownstein's name is in the opening <gasps> oh, credits, and we yes. were like, "What? She's in this movie?" Yeah, we had a full conniption. We saw Carrie Brownstein because her yeah. name just doesn't come up in the credits. It's like the third one listed yeah. right after Sarah Paulson. So we were like, "Oh, she she's is a like, main character. She's a yeah, she's a main part of this." And no spoilers, but she's not. <laughs> she is in a scene, and we see her through a window. Yes. <laughs> and hey, it was enough for me. It was more than enough for me. So um, a short synopsis. Um, a young aspiring photographer, Therese Bellavette, meets an enchanting and wealthy older woman named Carol, and they fall in love in 1950s New York. It is so sensual. Um, Kate Blanchett plays Carol. Yeah, she does. Oh, girl. She's so hot. Um, Rooney Mara plays Therese. And special mention to Sarah Paulson, who plays Abby, Carol's, like, lifelong friend and a former lover. God, what a great cast. Great cast. Okay, okay, no, I I, I stand corrected. I don't think we're going to be able to find anything wrong with this film. I'm already going back on my (laughs) prior statement. Um, I brought the book with me because I love a prop. Mm. Sam, I wanted um, – this is the book that the film is based off of. Um, I want you to hold it just so you have it. It's such a nice book. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't this originally titled The Price of Salt? It was entitled The Price of Salt when it was released in 1952. Um, it was published by Patricia Highsmith under a pseudonym, Claire Morgan, because in the 50s she did not want to be labeled a lesbian writer. It was only her second novel, um, her first being Strangers on a Train, which is another film. 
It's been adapted, and she also wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is a Wow. Yeah. She wrote, like, at least a dozen novels in her career. Most of them were about criminal minds or heist or criminals, and this is the only one that has a strictly gay plot line at all and is also the only one that is, I mean, it's definitely semi-considered a romance. It's a little more dry than that in a read. I highly recommend reading the book for anyone who enjoys the movie. It's very well written, um, but it's very different from the film in terms of the tone. It's, it's almost like very foreboding, like almost like a thriller. But really? Yeah. It's, uh, you get senses of that throughout this movie, but only towards the end that yeah. they're like in any peril. Mm-hmm. It's very understated, but it's uh-huh. there, this undercurrent of like kind of anxiety. Have you read the book? I have not read the book. <gasps> you haven't read the book? No, we, I, this will be a little treat for you when I do read the book. Wait, I'm going to give you this book then. This Aww. book is for you. You can have it. And you know what's really sweet it. is the um, bookmark in it uh, is the receipt for some postcards I bought for you at the MoMA of the um, David Hockney exhibit. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. It's the receipt from that. I'm Isn't actually going to so cry, you little devil. <laughs> Merry I, Christmas. I, we got in here and I asked Lizzie why she had this book because I thought she was going to have me read something. But this is so sweet. Aww, this I'm is so also glad. so gay. It's the gayest thing ever. For the those listening, Lizzie has purchased me my gayest books, including <laughs> Call Me By Your Name and, um, oh, what's that other one we like? Lie With Me. Lie With Me. Ugh, you just want to rip my heart out into a million little pieces. I do. Well, you, you first gifted me The Fountainhead, so yeah. I blame you for my cynicism. Yeah, you, as you should. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This is a nice little treat. You're I'll so let you know welcome. how I like it. Please do. So the original title title of the book when it was released was The Price of Salt. Um, it wasn't until very recently, I think in the 90s, that the book was republished under Patricia Highsmith's actual name and then with the new title, Carol. Um, the Price of Salt. It's such a delicious title. Do you have any thoughts on why the book might have been called that? No, and there's also, like, nothing in the movie that would tip me off as to what that means. Yeah, it's very subtle. I I had to chew on that for a while, honestly, but what it kind of came down to is um, it reminds me of that phrase, the salt of the earth. Mm -hmm. If someone is, like, the salt of the earth, they're, like, the essence, the everything. So the price of salt to me is, like, Carol has to pay a price for her freedom of being able to— Mm. choose to be gay and they both pay a very heavy price as we'll talk about um in their society to like they suffer like criminal charges essentially almost Mm -hmm. um so that was my interpretation of the original title the price of salt screenwriter phyllis nage wrote the first draft of the screenplay in 1997 and the script was in development for over 20 years like going back and forth in between producers and different lead actors It was having a hard time getting any commitment from studios to fund it. You would think it would be because it's like very much a film about gay people. But honestly, because it's such a quiet film and it has only female leads Mm -hmm. was the real reason that um, the screenwriter and many of the producers who were on it would kind of say that they had trouble getting it funded, which I think really sucks. Um, That's interesting because, I mean, the the subject matter could be, I guess, interpreted in a very slow way and almost like in a boring way. But I think the pacing of this film is done really well. Mm. And yeah, I think it would probably take a very like skilled director um, and cinematographer to keep people really engaged in this. 
once it did come together, like all the players that ended up, Todd Haynes, the director, and then um, Christine Vachon was one of the producers, and the um, I forgot the cinematographer's name, but a wonderful cinematographer that had worked with Todd Haynes on several other films. It ended up in the right hands for sure, and like so much care was taken with the production of all the costuming and the locations and the editing and the tone and the vibe. They didn't have to compromise. Yeah, I do Long know something short. about this that could be the f- the flaw of this film, mm. and uh, it's that Harvey Weinstein produced it. Yeah, that's the one flaw. God yeah, damn. the Weinstein Company. And he himself, like, signed off on it. Uh, which makes it creepy. I know. I wasn't even going to bring that up. I know. I like to just forget about it, but whatever. Yeah. He's dead now. So even in, like, fucking 2014, this was considered risky to produce. And, in fact, the producers had to settle for a lot less money than they originally wanted. I think they were aiming for $25 million. They ended up with twelve, which yeah. sounds like a lot of money. But in the film world, when you have, like, big stars like Kate Blanchett and you're Mara, you're spending a lot of that money to get them, you know? Yeah, you're you're spending a huge amount of your budget recreating 1950s New York mm-hmm. that, like— you have to get the cars and you have to maintain this, mm-hmm. like, almost this fan. And, and, you know, to their credit, like, I never once had my um, disbelief suspended. Mm-hmm. Actually, fun fact, uh, because of the cut in budget, they ended up shooting this film in Cincinnati, hmm. um, a city that apparently has, like, a lot of um, uh, mid-century architecture still really well preserved and they were able to sell it for new york wow it kind of looked like chicago to me maybe it's the snow maybe it's the snow and i mean i don't know it made me want to check out cincinnati hey cincinnati hey we see you ohio so yeah todd haynes was eventually brought on to direct he's fantastic he's directed some other films such as velvet goldmine i'm not there um with Kate Blanchett love that. playing uh, fucking Bob Dylan. Oh, Incredible job. Love that. We're going to talk about that film at some point on this pod, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, Far From Heaven, which I have not watched but is on the top of my watch list. It seems like a really cool film and I think is vaguely gay. Uh, he's also doing an upcoming Velvet Underground documentary that's coming out, like, I think early next year. Oh, great. I thought that would interest you. That does. I I trust him to do a good job with that. Yeah. He takes a lot of care with his stories, obviously. He took a lot of care with this one. If you've seen I'm Not There, he takes, like, it seems like he spends an incredible amount of time researching. Mm -hmm. Um, Kate Blanchett in that movie is, if you do anything, like, please just YouTube just her part in that. She does a fantastic job and only will, like, further confirm your sexuality, I'm sure. (laughs) In either direction. In in any direction (laughs) you want. So one difference um, that the screenwriter chose to make from the book in the screenplay is that Therese Bellavet in the book is actually um, trying to become a play set designer, like design sets for the stage. Mm. But in the film, she's a photographer, which works out really great. And they actually wove that into kind of the thematic fabric of the film. They shot the film on 16 millimeter film. So it's very grainy as opposed to 35 millimeter, which is what a lot of directors like... um, What's his butt with the Chris Nolan? Mm-hmm. Chris Nolan, they'll shoot on 35. It's also a great medium, but the grain is basically lost. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so sharp. But 16 millimeter is definitely like heavy grain, super crunch, like looks amazing. And I thought it was a really good choice because the cinematography is based more on the photographs from the 1950s era um, and less on films from that era. Todd Haynes 
quotes that there was actually many female photographers at the time that he looked at their work for direct inspiration for the film. Uh, photographers like Ruth Orkin, Helen Levitt, Esther Bubbly, uh, Vivian Mayer. Oh, Outside Vivian of Mayer. The, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've talked to me about Vivian Mayer before. Yeah, so he used he used the photographs from like people like Vivian Mayer to style the photographs that Therese was taking, or did exactly. he also use them to inspire his like cinematography? Both, definitely wow. both. And even the color from the color photography of that time, they spent a lot of time in post making sure the color of the film had a very specific tone. It's all very like dingy, almost mm-hmm. very like dusky greens and dusty. Yeah, it's. It's gorgeous, and it feels a lot like film photography. Yeah, when you mentioned that it was shot on 16 millimeter, it makes sense because, like, we watch this movie and you just feel like you've wrapped a warm blanket around yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Everything's very close, which, mm-hmm. you know, helps for the intimacy of certain scenes, but also helps for, like, the crushing, like, anxious feeling. That the that paired with the, like, soft sounds, like, there is no harsh... Mm-mm. There's no harshness in the score or quiet. yeah, they're almost always like whispering. Mm-hmm. Like it's just ugh, it's such a nice movie to put on and like maybe even fall asleep. Mm-hmm. It's very soothing. And the film cinematography does something really interesting that at first I found a little jarring, but we're often like as a camera view, we're often going from like Therese's point of view to like a third party voyeur kind of looking in to Carol looking at Therese. Like you're constantly switching who the camera's perspective is coming from. And at first I was kind of like confused and a little dizzied. But then once I kind of just let that go, I was entranced. It's a really interesting way to play with the perspective. Um, And that again, kind of reminded me of photography in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I never... The perspective changing never, and that usually like psychs me out of things, but I never picked up on that. Like I kind of just felt like fly on the wall for the most part. And I, it, it it's so smooth mm-hmm. the way that it's done that unless you're, you know, maybe going back and doing research for a film podcast, you might not even notice that you're being kind of thrown around perspective wise. Yeah. I mean, this was probably my fourth watch watching it for the podcast. Like I'd seen it three other times before and it's really the only time I also noticed it and I mean, the editor and the cinematographer did such a great job to, like, balance it. And it just, like, brings you in and intoxicates you a little bit. I wanted to go through the film through some of my favorite quotes. There's not much dialogue in the film, but the dialogue that is there is my head, like, swims with how many layers it has to it. They never just say what they mean in the most straightforward way, which here at Subtextual we love. (laughs) All right, so... One of the first scenes in the movie and the one that I think about probably the most is our meet cute um, where Therese and Carol finally meet each other. So Therese is a young woman living in New York. Um, She's working at a department store job during the Christmas holidays. She's interested in working in the train sets because she works in the toy department, but she ends up working at a counter selling dolls. So one day on a busy pre-Christmas sale morning, she sees this stunning woman with a uh, short blonde hair and this like mink coat and this beautiful red hat uh, across the store and she's just totally stunned. Um, they lock eyes and Carol comes over and starts talking to Therese, says she wants to purchase a doll, um, starts charming her, asking questions about Therese, like what would you have wanted as a six-year-old? 
Um, she buys a doll, kind of leaves Therese in this stupor, and as she's walking away, she kind of looks Aww, over her shoulder and says, Can I say this line? Please. I like that. Oh, that was great. It's so iconic. Uh, if anyone has seen this film, this moment just leaves your heart a fluttering. Just the, just the tilt of her head looking over her shoulder. I like the hat and just like the little finger. It's such, it's so well played. So good. It's such a plain line that is just taken to this amazing place of like, you know, she likes more than the hat. Yeah. Okay. She's trying to fuck. She's trying to fuck. So the character of Therese at this point is like very young and very awkward and naive and super relatable. Um, And this character is actually based on... Patricia Highsmith herself, the author of the book, um, this whole story was based off of a moment that she had working in a department store at the doll counter, meeting a blonde woman and just being like totally intoxicated with her. She immediately went home that day, wrote down this idea in her notebook and over a year developed it into a novel, her second novel. Okay. So when Patricia Highsmith does some shit like that, it's cute. (laughs) <laughs> but when I write fan fiction about Kate <laughs> Blanchett, it's a waste of time. Yeah, but this that's that's actually so sweet. Like I think uh, every human has had those interactions where like oh, yeah. you're like, "Oh my god, they just ordered a soda and I'm in love with them." I'm stunned. I'm literally speechless. God, I I want to read every lesbian like um what's that? Missed interactions or what's that thing um, on? Um Misconnections. Yes, that the misconnections on Craigslist. Like if I if every one of those was turned into a full fledged book and then a movie, like I would be so overjoyed. That would be my favorite genre of movie, like misconnections movie. So Patricia Highsmith just went home and instead of getting online and writing a misconnection, just wrote Carol's novel. Hell yeah. Yeah. Patricia said of the encounter, I felt odd and swimmy in the head, near to fainting. Yet at the same time, uplifted as if I had seen a vision. Wow. Which I'm like, holy shit. I'm like faint just hearing that. <laughs> um, and another thing that really stuck out to me about this scene, even before I went to rewatch it again for the podcast, is when I was talking about the color of the film, it's all very like muted and kind of dark and dingy. But there's the color red sticks out to me mm. so much, especially in this scene. Carol's wearing this red hat. She's got red fingernails, red lipstick. And then the only other red thing in the scene is Therese's Santa hat, the one that she compliments. So the color red is one of the most significant visual elements of the film. To me, it represents the acceptable public displays of affection and attraction that women are allowed to show each other. Mm. Like you're allowed to touch a woman's face if it's to admire her lipstick. You're allowed to hold her hand if it's to look at the polish on her nails. Mm. You're allowed to gaze at her if it's to admire her dress and her clothes. So I think Carol having all of this red, and she basically has red lips and red nails for most of the film, is kind of a way to like draw Therese in and allow her to look, give her the permission to look and to gaze at her. And then Therese having that red hat and her being like, hey, I like the hat is a way to be like, and I recognize you too. Like mm-hmm. we're looking at each other openly in public, but we're hiding it under this like, you know, the fashion. What that reminds me of is that like, you know, you saying that like 
in or in order for these women to touch each other in public, like they have to, they have this construct with which allows them to do so. And it reminds me of, I forget who wrote it, but there was a paper basically um, explaining why men are so attracted to physical sports and, and like, um, and it's because like they have to create all these fantastic situations for them to be able to embrace each other. And that really reminds me of that. And if I remember who wrote that, I will I will put it in the notes. Yeah, please link it to me also because I've been meaning to reread that article too. Mm-hmm. So this is, yeah, this is the lesbians version of football in the 1950s. <laughs> it's like Santa hats and red nail polish. Yeah. The hat, like tackles her. Oh my God. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so after this scene where she buys the doll, Carol leaves her gloves at the counter accidentally. Yeah. Not so accidentally. I've done that once or twice. I've left my gloves at someone's house. Mm -hmm. Um, So Therese, like, gets her address from the receipt and sends them back to her with a little Christmas card. So Carol calls Therese at work and asks if she can take her to lunch to thank her for returning her gloves. Um, At lunch, Therese is super nervous and super awkward Carol is absolutely stunning and totally in her element. They sit down to eat and the waiter asks them what they want and Therese has no idea what to order. So she just gets what Carol is having, which is (laughs) poached spinach and eggs with a dry martini, like the gayest meal of all time. And I will be cooking that for myself tomorrow. If I like remember correctly, I, when I watched this movie, I was like a full cigarette and a dry martini at like 1030 in the morning. Yeah. Like straight 11 a.m. Eastern time. And her lipstick is on point. God, what? Oh man, the lipstick in this movie is so inspiring. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that you're saying like red is is the signaling color and intentional or not, they chose two of the fairest skinned actresses mm. so that like if their face flushes, you can tell in an instant. So this red like really does draw you closer. I didn't even think about that, but totally. Like in this scene in particular, Therese is constantly blushing and eating, a, you know, getting eating a weird, awkward bite of spinach and she like gets some spinach on her chin and has to like cover it up and... You just can see everything written so plainly on their faces because they're not allowed to say anything in words. It all has to be right here. And in between the eyebrows and the lips, mm-hmm. it has to be painted on. It totally works. Oh, yeah. So Trez says, I'm sure you thought it was a man who sent back your gloves. And Carol says, I did. I doubt very much if I'd have gone to lunch with him. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> so we learn Carol's getting a divorce from her uh, husband, Harge, and she asks, Therese to come visit her in her New Jersey countryside home that weekend. And Therese, of course, agrees. Carol says, what a strange girl you are, flung out of space. Oh, this line is so iconic. Yeah. What do you what do you think of this line? Well, it, it when I remember that scene, it's kind of like, it almost sounds like those are her internal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that she's forgetting she's with someone because she's like flung out of space. And she kind of like her head like floats away into another world and you see like Therese overwhelms with like not understanding exactly what it means but liking it you know mm-hmm. um, feeling special yeah she like this woman would say that yeah what I took of this line was that like something flung out of space is like a shooting star or an angel or a comet which are these very like beautiful surprising things and in my mind while I was watching this film I was like 
kind of stumped by Therese because honestly, and I, I don't say this to sound rude, but she kind of reminded me of Bella Swan in that like, <laughs> like sure, she's cute and great, but she doesn't do anything to like jump out as amazing. She's really awkward and like doesn't say the right thing and is mm-hmm. flushed and like trying too hard. But Carol is like obviously taken in by her and drawn to her. Yeah, but we get a sense throughout the film that like Carol is not just gay. She's a career lesbian. Mm -hmm. Like she has dated many a people. And so I think when you are that lesbian and you have to navigate like living in secret while having a husband and a child, she probably needs no fucking time. She could probably spot you out of a crowd and be like, you. Yeah, I think she recognizes something in Therese. Mm -hmm. And also, like, Carol's rich. Like, her life is basically structured around cocktail party rules. Mm -hmm. Like, she never gets to just, like, talk. It's always, like, look perfect, be perfect, act perfect. And with Therese, she can just be herself, you know? She doesn't have to put on a show. You know, and Therese is very enchanted by her. But someone is being honest with her, and she can be honest with someone. Mm -hmm. So Bella Swan sparkles <laughs> for our uh, vampire. And there's this great moment where they finally get to exchange names and Therese just kind of like spits out her own name. She's like, oh, it's Therese Bellavet. And then Carol like savors it back to her. Therese Bellavet, what a lovely name. And then Therese like savors Carol's name back. Like, yeah, Carol. And this is where I quit this podcast to go immediately compose a fan fiction of which there's like a call me by your name sex scene where they're each calling each other each other's names oh my god and i will be cash rolling that i don't think there's been a single episode of our podcast so far where we haven't likened the movie to call me by your name (laughs) (laughs) call me by your name is just like stolen every good gay thing and put them all in one movie yeah they did a great job they did a great job okay we're not talking about that movie yet all right so cut to the weekend carol picks up therese and they go on this very hazy surreal drive um out into the new jersey countryside that you can kind of tell they're like lost in this little bubble and kind of like intoxicated by the fact that they get to be so close to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, they stop at a roadside Christmas tree stand and Carol gets a Christmas tree. And this is the first time we see Therese taking photos of a person. Any photos we've seen before this were of like birds or cars or signs. But she gets out of the car to take a picture of Carol and later apologizes because Carol apparently caught her taking a picture. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, don't apologize. And kind of like gives her permission to come closer and this becomes like a visual representation of their intimacy because like this first photo is just like a wide of her um, kind of interacting with the guy selling the Christmas tree and like looking back at her with like the snow falling on her hair but then as the film progresses we get closer we get like Carol at the dinner table laughing and then eventually we get Carol in bed with her like hair uh, falling over the pillow it's so beautiful which brings me to one of my favorite pieces of film theory from my film theory class in college. And that is the idea of the male gaze. Let's see, these the are the male, female gaze. These are the female gaze, right? G-A-Y-S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this film is all about the female gaze. And um, this is the female gaze is a continuation of a term the male gaze coined by feminist film theorist Laura Mulvey 
It represents the more dominant perspective in cinema that is the gaze of the hetero male audience member, but also the gaze of a male character and male filmmakers on female and non-female characters. So it, it places women as spectacles to be objectified and viewed, unable to return the gaze and rendering them powerless. But what this film does is strictly it's a female gaze. It's two women able to look at each other and appreciate each other and kind of give permission to each other to like take themselves in and, and bear themselves to the other by giving permission to view. Well, because this is directed by Todd Haynes, wouldn't you say that it's still the male gaze, the male gazing at the female gaze gazing? (laughs) (laughs) I think that Todd Haynes really took the time to craft a story that was written by a book written by a queer woman, adapted by a screenwriter who's a queer woman, not played by queer women, even though I have my doubts about Kate Blanchett. So I think he really did a good job of not letting his cis male perspective bleed onto the film. Like, it felt very honest to me as this is women in a safe space with women being together um, personally. Do you have a different perspective on it? I mean, can a man direct something without the male gaze? I don't think so. And I know that you're saying like, oh, the book is written by a lesbian and the screenplay is written by a woman, and I think, like you said, like he he put a lot of intentional work into understanding the male gaze. Um, but this was still produced by Harvey Weinstein, so with the industry being what it is, like you have to zoom out at some point. And I think this is a male gazing at a female gaze gazing, mm-hmm. and I think it's well done. But I don't think it's it would be void of the male gaze. Well, then. We need to find a movie that has just the female gaze. It'd be a... Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about Jennifer's Body? Was that directed by a woman? Karen Kasama, yeah. Yeah, so Jennifer's Body and Portrait of a Lady on Fire mm-hmm. are the only movies with the female gaze. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah, for the female gaze. And it's for the female gaze. Yes. I told you I'd say the word gaze like 400 times in this episode. Yeah. All right, so time for a man to ruin everything Yay. for the first, but certainly not for the last time in this movie. Um, so, yeah, Carol's been going through a divorce with Harge, and things seem to be going amicably. But after this weekend and Harge basically barging in on her at the house and seeing that she's hanging out with this woman, um, we find out that Harge has changed his stance in the divorce proceedings, and he wants full custody of their six-year-old child, Rindy, in stating use of a quote-unquote morality clause. The context of it and the conversation that Carol is having with her lawyer is that, like, basically her actions of being gay and having a relationship with Abby have caused her to be unfit in the court's eyes to have her child in her custody. So to distract herself, Carol decides to leave town and ask Therese to go with her, and Therese agrees. So... Now we get into a bit of history, a bit of depressing history. The morality clause was interpreted in divorce proceedings as a way of preventing romantic partners from spending the night while the children are in the home to kind of like prevent the kid being unsure about it or being unsafe by it. It does have 
a history of keeping gay couples apart in as late as 2013. There's one case that I found in Texas, the great state of Texas, yep. where a judge ruled that a woman um, would have to move out of her partner's house while her partner's divorce was being finalized. The two partners were two women. It was used in this court ruling um, to keep a lesbian couple apart because if the couple in question is married, the morality clause is void. But because gay people were not able to be married in Texas until 2015 when it was passed federally, the girlfriend of this woman had to move out. Kind of like, well, you're just a partner sleeping over, so wow. you're not actually like a partner. You're not a real support system to this child. And Way to go, Texas. Way to go, Texas. There's not really much to say on this. It is what it is. Morality clause is fucked up. It's keeping Carol from her daughter and also like adding a lot of stress to this new relationship that she's forming with Therese because that's even more evidence to add to the pile when they go to court um, and she might lose her daughter. It's, it's fucking crazy. And this was in the 1950s. This is not that long ago. Mm. But there is some good out of it. They get to go on a cute little gay road trip, <laughs> which I love. And is one of the reasons why I love the book so much. The road trip scenes are just, they fall into this great rhythm. So Therese has a boyfriend named Richard. She goes to him to try to get advice Asking him if he's ever been in love with another boy before. I think she's feeling a little confused about how could she possibly be feeling these things for a woman. That'd be weird, right? Right, Richard? That's normal, right? Richard, Richard is the last person you should ask. <laughs> Richard's a total dumbass. He's just like a Ken doll. He's, of course, disgusted, uses lots of wonderful othering language like, sure, I know people like that. Um, and then he asked her to come to his parents for Christmas but she said she would feel weird because Christmas is for family. But you are a family, Terry. Yeah. Um, she tells him that instead she's going on a trip with Carol, this woman that she met. And he freaks out. <laughs> says she has a schoolgirl school crush. And he says, you're in a trance. And she's like, no, I'm wide awake. I've never felt more awake. I mean, this conversation's hilarious because she's like, hey, have you ever been gay before? And he's like, no, not me. And she's like, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to hang out with you for Christmas. I'm going to go make out with Carol. He basically clocks that she's a lesbian like right away. Yeah. And he means it like jokingly, like you have a crush and like, oh, you like this girl. But it's obviously not a real thing he's actually concerned about. No, it seems almost like it's, almost like an it's so it's so minimizing. He's like, oh, you have a crush on her, you know, like, yeah. It, not that it could be anything authentic. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he thinks that's a sexual thing. Like having a schoolgirl crush is not like a sexual relationship Yeah, in his mind. She's like, does he know. Christmas is for family, so I'm going to go hang out with Carol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, as soon as they hit the road, they do form this little family. I mean, they kind of like play house. They are constantly like giggling as they go into hotel rooms because like, oh, we get to stay in this wonderful hotel together. And they go to lunch and listen to records at night. It's super Damn. lovely. And I think this is a really nice way for the both of them to kind of like choose their own family at Christmas time to get away, to just lock the door and be like private in their own space and just giggle and put on perfume and like do each other's makeup. There's literally all things that they do in the film and just enjoy each other. It's so nice. They don't bang till like New Year's, right? Mm -hmm. They don't bang till New Year's. So right now it's just like sweet. There's like a week of like sexual tension until and they like get tucking to each other's hair behind each other's ears. Yeah. And like sharing like 
pajama bottoms and sleeping in separate beds. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Preserving the charade. Absolutely. But it do all come to a head on New Year's. Um, so on New Year's, they're just like hanging out in the room, having champagne, kind of like telling each other secrets and Carol's brushing Therese's hair and Carol says, Harge and I never spend New Year's Eve together. There's always a business function, always clients to entertain. And Therese says, I'm always spent it alone in crowds. I'm not alone this year. And they take each other's clothes off and have sex. Ah, ah. Sex, sex, sex. They have sex. It's so nice. Do you remember the sex scene? It's very tender. I think you can tell, like, I think Carol can tell that this is her first time Mm -hmm. with a woman. And so she's very, like. I think it's her first time, period. No. Mm -hmm. You think she's a virgin? She says at some point in the film that she's never had sex with Richard. I don't think she's had sex before. She's a gold star lesbian. She's a fucking virgin? I, I, I don't believe that she's a virgin. She doesn't conduct herself like a 28-year-old virgin, I don't she's think. She's 19. She's 19? She's 19. She's baby. She's 19? Yeah. What? So she's a virgin, probably. In the 1950s. Wait, wait. So how old is Carol? Like 30s. She's 19? I think so, yeah. Why are you saying that? Like, that's not... You're saying 19 with, like, exclamation point question mark. (laughs) That's insane. Oh, then she is a virgin, probably. Yeah, she's definitely a virgin. This is her first time. It's a great first time. It's a really lovely sex scene. They're both everyone's best case. Yeah. And she is, like... I mean, I can't... Who starts it first? Well, Therese kind of, like, puts her hand... And holds Carol's hand and, like, locks eyes in a way that's, like, let's fuck. And, and then, then Carol, Carol's like, hands go. She, like, slips her robe off. And Therese is, like, take me to bed. I'm like, let's fucking go. Damn. This it's this so creates, nice. like, They're false so expectations pretty. for virgins out there. <sighs> yeah, it's not like this. I it promise. is not like this. <laughs> so, great sex scene. It's lovely. <clears throat> And now for a man to ruin things for a second time in this film. <laughs> this is, you You talk about the female gaze, and I, you know, I said that, you know, being directed by Todd Haynes kind of dispels you from that. But I think that he does a very good job at not protecting the male characters for being exactly who they were. Mm-hmm. And not a single man does anything good in this movie. They don't do anything good, but not out of, like, maliciousness. They do it out of just, like, being who they are Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like just being troubled and being clueless which is good this this film doesn't need a villain society is the villain of this film Mm -hmm. the powers that be the powers that be and a little bit of harge because the next morning after they have their love making um they discover that a private investigator has been following them and has recorded their love making and sent a tape to harge and harge's lawyer Disgusting. Fucking disgusting. I mean. How is that legal? Talk about, I was saying how good of a first time this was. Could you imagine how this would scar you? Oh, yeah. Like knowing that some man was listening to you. Yeah. So Carol's confronted with losing everything, losing Therese, losing custody of her child. She basically has to... Go home right away, and Abby comes to help drive Therese back to New York. And Therese is just like, 
guilt-ridden, self-conscious. She has like a kind of a meltdown about being young and naive and never saying no and kind of just going through this moment where she's just feeling sick of guilt because she can do nothing to help Carol and she feels like she's put her in this situation where she might lose her child. But also, I think she also feels bad because she knows what they're doing is traditionally wrong, quote unquote. I mean, she has no one to like walk her through this. But Carol, who immediately has to leave, and then Abby, who does what she can, but is also kind of a harsh person. Well, yeah, the the shame, I'm sure, of, of having sex for the first time, coupled with the shame of having gay sex for the first time in the society that they live in, and then worst possible case, you imploded the person's life that you care about most, doing something that you really wanted to do and that felt really good and was so meaningful and it was like the demise of this person and they cast you away immediately like and not even with so many words she like gives her like a letter she or writes something. her a letter which is really nice but it's also very coded as well because mm-hmm. if someone finds that letter she, you know she's fucked she can't say like great time having sex with you my love like wait for me three months she's like all she basically says is we have a lot of work to do and you're looking for answers because you're young, but we can't talk for right now. God. Oh, it's just that she, me. she even like gets Abby to like pull over on the side of the road at a certain point and she vomits. Like she's just and I that sick to your stomach feeling like I fucking been there. I've been there. And Lizzie's holds my hair back. Yeah. Oof. Oof. You know, some people say this is like Patricia Highsmith's only film, not about criminals but like at this point they've they're kind of treated like criminals like we'll have a scene coming up where they're where carol kind of has to like justify her actions in front of like a panel of men mostly lawyers and they're always having to like hide when they're in public even like at dinner or at lunch and like they hear it called like oh i know women like that you know i know people like that people who do the gay sex ew <laughs> you know they don't have a way of like discussing those things in public or doing anything in public so they just wear their red nail polish and go about their business leave their gloves at various department stores yeah exactly and now they can't even have peace in private because this private investigator like tapped their room yeah they can't even run away and have privacy it's just awful yeah just the things people had to deal with So over the past next few months, Carol goes through a lot of shit. This is where we kind of follow her and get her perspective of what's going on. She's not allowed to see or barely talk to Therese. I think Therese calls her late one night and they just have a moment where they just kind of like breathe into the phone and then Carol has to hang up. Carol, she can barely see her own daughter and when she does, it's supervised like with Harge's rich stuck-up family she can barely see abby her one like queer friend and family member and there's this really heartbreaking scene that i it actually made me cry because it was just so well done but abby comes over to carol's house one night and like brings her a cup of tea and they're just talking and carol's like i'm not sure how much of this i can handle and abby's like you can do this and she's like have you heard from therese no i haven't but she must have started her new job and while they're talking uh, you see headlights coming through the window and they look out and I guess a car is pulling around in their driveway, but it like freaks them out both so much because they're like, oh shit, like if someone pulls up like and Abby's here at my house while we're alone late at night, it's going to look so bad even though we're literally just talking. And so Abby's like, I got to go. 
So she's totally alienated. They make her go see psychotherapists, which they refer to as doctors, and Mm. they say she's getting better, and she has to go spend time with Harge's family and just, like, pretend that everything's normal. It's yeah. awful. And all like she's holding her kid hostage. She's going to like fucking get a lumbotomy or something. Yeah, it's so scary. Like she's just alienated. She's probably on medication. Like, I would be. Damn. <laughs> for my own self. For like, my own self. Like give me something to sleep at night. Yeah. And then there's this scene, the scene I was discussing earlier where it's like where all the lawyers and the two parties of the divorce get together to kind of like work out the the terms of the divorce. And if they can't do it, they're going to go to court basically. So the lawyers are fighting back and forth. She's being discussed as being in recovery. And it's even suggested by her own lawyer that her husband's actions drove her to an emotional break that led to the described actions. So they're saying like, well, she only became a lesbian because her husband was emotionally neglecting her. Oh, like if your husband's not serving you well enough or not being there for you, then you're going to resort to dating a woman. Like that's a reason for being gay. (laughs) Which I've definitely joked about that, but it's not true. I just think how preposterous it would be, like, as a gay person, if my girlfriend was pissing me off, that I'd just go fuck a dude. But <laughs> not like, just... Well, I'm going to go date a man. Not just fuck a dude, but, like, then he's, like, my best friend and the godfather of my children. And, yeah. like, that's not something people do. So here's a great quote. This is kind of a long one, but this is... um While the lawyers are arguing, Carol, like, stands up at the table and kind of has this like last ditch soliloquy that she aims at Harge, her ex, and she says, I'm no martyr. I have no clue what's best for me, but I do know I feel it in my bones what's best for my daughter. I want visits with her, Harge. I don't care if they're supervised. There was a time I would have locked myself away just to keep Rindy with me, but what use am I to her, to us, living against my own grain? Rindy deserves joy. How do I give her that not knowing what it means myself? That's the deal. Take it or leave it. I won't negotiate. If you leave, we go to court. And if we go to court, it gets ugly. And we're not ugly people, Harge. So basically she like comes out to this panel and is like, look, y'all are discussing me. Like I'm going to get better. No, bitch. Like I need to be myself. I need to feel love. I need to own my shit. I need to have sex with women, be in a relationship with women so that I can be happy and be a happy mother for my child. It would have been so hilarious if she read him and was just like, I'm not an ugly person, Harge. (laughs) But you are. God, he's obviously still in love with her. And I'm like, you need to let her go. She a lesburn. Yeah. She a loose moon. It's sad. But his intentions are – I would be in love with her too. Fuck. Like if if Carol was around me and the mother of my child and, Mm -hmm. you know – Even if she wasn't gay, like, even if she was just in love with someone else, that would kill me, Mm -hmm. you know? Not to humanize his actions too much, but, you know, at a certain level, who wouldn't be in love with her? And you had her for a second, even if it was as property, you know? And she's pulling away and you're getting scared. And And trying to hold on to her so hard and literally trying to own her, trying to claim her. Mm -hmm. I guess he tried to love her and it just wasn't enough. So now he feels probably like a lesser than person. And his ego is a little shattered. But fuck him. Yeah, but fuck him. So in the car, Carol sees Therese through the window. Therese is wearing red, catches her eye. So Carol sends Therese a hand-delivered letter to her new job at the Times. 
Um, another instance of those infamous, I still love you, do you love me letters. <laughs> I love those. A great one in fried green tomatoes. Um, they meet up for tea, and Carol literally asks her to move in and tells her, I love you. Uh, so moving. And Rooney, uh, excuse me, Therese looks so much older. Yeah. Like, I, I, not that much time could have passed, but she looks like, you know, maybe it's the new job. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's definitely her, the heartbreak. Yeah, maybe passing the heartbreak or breaking up with your shitty boyfriend. But she looks like a damn woman. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's probably a dynamic that Carol, you know, I, I would love to believe she's a perfect person. But maybe she does prefer a power dynamic where she's in control. And maybe that's why she was attracted to Therese. Mm-hmm. And now that she's a more evolved woman, she can't just stop everything she's doing Mm -hmm. and go and have these little trips and go and live the second life with Carol. And I think this is the first time we see Carol like without the confidence Mm -hmm. that she could actually attain her. Yeah. Like it's definitely the roles have switched. Like in the beginning, Therese was the more like shy, powerless one. And Carol was the more confident one, not like abusing her power anyway, but it's definitely flipped so that Carol is the more unsure and, kind of like raw and tender and needs the support and Therese is pretty cold and has obviously like used a tactic through her recovery of heartbreak of like cut her off lock her out don't look at her photos don't think about her like move on with your life focus on me focus on my work you know she's working as a photographer now at the New York Times instead of at a fucking department store so yeah if if you could flip the the conver- I mean their first like lunch date where Therese can't look at her in the eye and and you know, says these things like under her hand out of Mm -hmm. embarrassment. And Carol is staring at her with like daggers and never looks away. And I think what I remember about this this final scene is that she says like, well, if you want to come and live with me, like there's room for another person. Mm -hmm. She doesn't look her in the eye when she says that. Yeah, it's very like, I hope you say yes, but I don't know if you will. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, thank God, Therese... Thinks about it for a few hours when she goes to her friend's party and eventually shows up at the restaurant where Carol is. They lock eyes across the restaurant and gaze at each other and have this little knowing smile of like, we're going to live happily ever after. Not before she has a terrible flirtatious interaction with Carrie Brownstein. Right. What I do remember correctly is that um, Carrie Brownstein kind of rolls up on her and like flirts with her and clocks yeah. her hard as a yeah. lesbian the moment she walks in the door. And Therese isn't really feeling it. And I would like to think that Carrie Brandstein ran her back to Carol's arms. I was like, if I can't, like, come on to Carrie Brownstein, will I come on to anyone ever again? Yeah, if Carrie Brownstein isn't good enough. Yeah. Who is? Your ex must have been great. I mean, it was Kate Blanchett. I mean. Who's fucking flawless. Truthfully. Flawless. I I wouldn't have played hard to get. Mm. Not that I'm saying that's what Therese did, but like she would have been like, if you want it, I'd be like, yep. Yeah, I love you too. Yeah, where's your apartment? Yeah, I'm moving in. Mm-hmm. Great. Missed you. Yeah, I think Therese had something to prove to herself, and I respect that she took the time to make that decision, even if it was like an hour and a half. Yeah, it was like <laughs> not a long time. She's still at the restaurant when you come back or yeah, whatever. exactly. No, we love it. Uh, I love this film. Me too. It's so lovely. Uh, it's such a great ending. And for this book, this story to be written in the 1950s and for a lesbian couple to have a relatively happy ending at the end was unheard of. It like rocked people's socks and 
God, even to this day, it's like one of the few films where the women get together in the end and no one dies. They, yeah, they get to keep each other and no one dies. And yeah, and there's also oh, there's not that many casualties, not not actual literal body count, but I mean no, like, no body count. But they don't really have to burn too much down. Yeah, I'm assuming Harge is moved by her her speech um, because he does care for her. I think really deep down he does. Well, she um, seems like a great friend because she's very close with her exes and. I mean, she just must be a good person to have around, and maybe that will be enough for him. Yeah. I mean, because they have a daughter. You know, they're never going to be completely out of each other's lives. Mm-hmm. So let's download. Let's review. So in interviews and any reviews I found, um, none of them were negative, by the way. I could not find a single negative review from a user or from a critic. People love this movie. As they should. As they fucking should. Um, but a lot of people, including um, some of the actors in the film, call this a universal love story, which for some reason, anytime I saw that, it really irked me. So I wanted to <laughs> bring that up and unpack that with you because I don't think I agree at all. I don't think this is a universal love story. I think this is a story Very for women. Very specific love only. story. For women only. You're, you're going to say something good about the movie. Why say something so weird as it's a universal love story? It's not at all. That's, imagine watching The Shape of Water and someone's like, it's a universal love story. <laughs> like, no, this is a very – it's a period piece about a very specific time, a very yeah. specific set of parameters. Tell me someone else that this has happened to that yeah, you know. <laughs> right. No, this is a movie about and for – Queer people, for lesbians specifically. Yeah, it's a very specific time and place as well. And like just what you're saying with the morality clause and the situations that they both find themselves in, this is not universal. I can't relate to this other than the fact that I'm gay. Like if this was about a man and a woman, I wouldn't I wouldn't have any point of relation to either of them. Yeah. Just because it's about two so. people who fall in love and have a connection, I'm like... That connection, I think, also has a lot to do with Carol being a mother because, and like, you're going to hate this, but <laughs> Therese and Rindy look a lot alike. I hate that. And I'm not saying, you? and like, this is going to come across wrong, but but I think Carol does take on like a, a older, wiser woman role for this young woman and kind of mothers her in a way, like teaches her a lot is the one that's like when she's having her meltdown of like I'm naive and I'm so selfish I should have said no to you she's the one that's like your feelings are valid I only took what you willingly gave like this is real you know like she is probably part of the reason that Trez was able to grow up so quickly in the few months that they were apart and be the person that we saw her at the end of the story in the tea room I say no Fair enough I say no I say Rooney Mara is conventionally very very hot and so Kate Blanchett was like, that's a hot woman. Not, okay. That looks like my child. I'm not saying that's why she was attracted to her. See, I knew this would come out wrong. Anyway, you know why it bugs me when people call this a universal love story? It kind of bugs me in that same way whenever you're listening to politicians uh, like talk about sexual abuse allegations. They're like, imagine if that was your wife or daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what if you imagine it's the actual woman that it happened to? Like, mm-hmm. why does it have to be something that relates to you for you to understand it? And I feel that like now that being queer is a little bit easier for most people to accept these days, it's now like, 
oh, well, now that hetero society can understand it, we can claim those stories as well. It's like, oh, yeah, I can relate to that Mm -hmm. story about two women falling in love, even though I'm not gay. And I'm like, that's great. But that doesn't make this a universal love story. This makes this a lesbian love story told well. Does that make any sense at all? I think people use universal love story to say, even if this seems totally batshit, you can agree that these people have chemistry. You know, like Titanic's a universal love story, but it's like, bitch, there's like only a finite people that were on the Titanic and they all died. But I see what you're saying. Like, they, you don't need to relate to something to enjoy it. You don't all have to claim part of it to say, it's, this is a good, this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, respect it for what it is. Yeah, like I said, fucking The Shape of Water. Like, who the fuck is going to relate to that? But, like, it's a good fucking story because it's told well and it's acted well and it's written well. It doesn't need to be universal. All right, but something that is universal, let's rate this shit on a scale of 1 to 10. Oh. All right, 1 to 10. God, I'm afraid. Sorry. I'm afraid. What are you afraid of? It's just if we do something this good, then no one else will be as good. No, this is the best film we're going to review. Like, there's maybe one or two other films that will be as good as this film. And that's okay. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you rate this film? 10. It's a 10. And on a scale of 1 to 10, how gay is this film? It's 10. It's a 10. <laughs> tens, tens, tens across the Wait, board. let me do the math. <laughs> yeah, could you, could you do the math? That on me? Okay, we give Carol a 10. It's fucking perfect. It's fucking perfect. It's so good. And what have we learned? I've learned that Cape Blanchett is Australian. I actually didn't know that until I was listening to interviews. Wow, she's Australian. Yeah, she's Australian. You got you Australian. Wait, what what I've learned? <laughs> <laughs> well, Lizzie, since you asked what I learned. Oh my god, we have Kate Blanchett in the studio. Kate, <laughs> I really love your work. Yes, it's me, Kate Blanchett, long-time friend of the pod. Um, <clears throat> hello, yes, it's me, Kate Blanchett. What um, <laughs> I've learned from this film is that even if you're as hot as me, you still probably have to leave your gloves around. So a 19-year-old can return them and you can play with her trains. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.